Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's uh, event and what an event it is. You're all very welcome. Uh, I understand uh, clearly we're at capacity. There's a line of people outside. Unfortunately, we're going to have to disappoint some people. Uh, one compensation is that tonight's discussion will be available as a podcast afterwards for people to, uh, to listen. Morris Fraser was a much-loved colleague here at the London School of Economics. Morris was witty, urbane, intelligent, learned, a man with much intellectual hinterland, very popular with his uh, colleagues. His connection with the LSE started as a student, an undergraduate student, here in the Department of Government. Later, he was to return to teach at the school, and indeed he became one of the school's first professors of practice and then the head of the European Institute. So it is fitting that tonight's uh, lecture is the second in our memorial lecture series in his name. We're very, very pleased uh, that uh, members of Morris's family are with us here tonight. His wife, uh, Nicolette Bobby, uh, his sons Constantine and Theodore and his daughter Celestine. You're very welcome indeed. As well as his broad scholarly interests, Morris combined experience in governments and indeed in Conservative Party politics. He worked with a number of very senior Conservative politicians. At his memorial service, I well remember a very warm personal tribute being read out from David Cameron, the then Prime Minister. Another long-term friend of Morris Fraser's is our guest this evening. To many people, Kenneth Clark is quite simply one of the best Prime Ministers we never had. He has had vast experience uh, in politics. Uh, he has been a member of Parliament for 48 years making him currently the father of the House. He's been a cabinet minister under three prime ministers, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, and David Cameron. His portfolios have been varied, Secretary of State for Health, Secretary of State for Education, Home Secretary, and Chancellor of the Exchequer. In 2005, when he was speaking to the Conservative Party conference to open his bid to be party leader, he told the party conference, I may not be everyone's cup of tea, but I promise you this, if you give me the chance to lead this party, I will lead it unspun. I will say what I think and try to do what I say, as I have always done in politics. Few would not recognize his independence of mind. In an age of skepticism about politicians, Kenneth Clark has remained true to his convictions. Today, he's identified, of course, as perhaps the leading pro-European Tory. Just this week, he rebelled and voted in favour of the so-called Hailsham Amendment to give Parliament a greater voice over the Brexit outcome. Tonight, of course, we'll focus on Kenneth Clark's career. In particular, we'll invite his reflections on the governments of Mrs. Thatcher and of John Major. Much of this evening is going to take the form of a conversation uh, with Professor Tony Travers, my colleague from the School of Public Policy, 
and with uh, myself. Tony, I'm sure, is well known to uh, all of you as an expert on British uh, politics. Tony will be asking questions about domestic politics, and I'll ask some questions about the Conservative Party and uh, Europe. Of course, as we finish, there will also be plenty of time for a Q&A with you, the audience, for you to ask your uh, questions. And you can also um, make your comments known via uh, Twitter. But let me also say that I haven't a clue how to do that myself, but I'm, I'm sure some of you know how to tweet. So, uh, first, uh, let me invite our guest to make uh, an opening uh, set of remarks, and then we'll proceed with the conversation. So, can you please join me in giving a very warm welcome back to the LSE, to Kenneth Clark. Well, thank you very much for that uh, very kind uh, introduction, which is very nice for you, and thank you very much for all coming. I'm amazed to find a packed audience on a nice summer evening, so I feel suitably honoured, and uh, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, and uh, I do take speaking engagements more sparingly nowadays. I don't feel any particular compelling need for my career or anything to do speaking engagements. I only do the ones that take my fancy. This, this wasn't actually one of the ones that particularly took my fancy. It was because of my, 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 my recollections of Maurice Fraser, my great regard for Maurice Fraser, who I was on good friendly terms with and known for years and years. And when I got the invitation, it reminded me of his tragic early death. So I am extremely glad to be here. And, and of course, he, he worked for years at the LSE, and I'm told he was a very popular figure here. So, but I knew Maurice through his political connections. Uh, he was one of these people, he was a researcher, political researcher, political aide. Uh, he was, used to work in the Conservative Research Department uh, when I first met him. Now, a lot of very bright people in those days worked in the Conservative Research Department. A lot of them wanted to pursue parliamentary and other careers. He was one of those, of a quite distinguished little collection, who wasn't interested in doing that. He actually was more interested in policy. He was, I may be wronged, my friend Anthony Teasdale may have forgotten he stood for some Labour seat somewhere once. I don't think he ever did. I never got the impression that Morris was faintly interested uh, in treading the boards and going into Parliament. Certainly it was a secret to me if he did, uh, but he became very well known as an active researcher, and he, he actually followed a career as what nowadays is called a special advisor. And I hasten to add, I think the increasing use of special advisors now is pretty deplorable, and what they're employed to do sometimes is just ridiculous, uh, and they're one of the things that's not doing a great deal of good to the system. Uh, but we had few in those days. You would be a pretty senior minister to have any political member of your staff at all, and the idea was not to spend the life, your life briefing the newspapers with the tax on your colleagues and all the other things on behalf of your boss. It was actually to be positive, political support, source of ideas, go-between with the department generally. And Morris did that. Um, when I first came health secretary in my much reshuffle career, because I knew Morris, I sounded him out about the prospect. I discovered I was now entitled to a SPAD. So would he like to come work with me and find out, you know, get into the health service, which I, I think he declined, actually, making it quite clear. It wasn't an immodest thing. Uh, he, he actually was hoping for something slightly, you know, different, bigger. I think he probably thought health he knew nothing about. But it's fascinating once you get into it. Uh, but but uh, he, he wanted to go to the Foreign Office. Uh, and he wound up 
being a special advisor to, uh, to Jeffrey Howe, John Major briefly, and Douglas Hurd. Well, they were all great friends of mine. They, they were my you know, political allies, all, all three of them, in pretty stirring and turbulent times. So Morris I got to know, and he was a, he was a key figure. I mean, he wasn't just somebody you know, running errands, far from it. He, he was actually a key political advisor with a very strongly, highly regarded, and not surprisingly, I got to know him. So he died tragically, I wrong. It's uh, a great pity, and uh, uh, a great pity to say the least. And, and it's nice to be able to remember him with this lecture. Now, having said that, we had agreed, I think, that I wasn't going to begin by giving a, a speech, so it's not speech and questions. And that was really my insistence. I think the trouble with memorial lectures, before, is you're, you're expected to get up with rather longer and graver and duller than you would be if you were giving an ordinary speech. And also, it's yeah, I don't do that anymore. So, so that's been substituted with an interrogation, <laughs> firstly by these two distinguished academics, and then by my audience. Uh, uh, and I hope uh, that you're interested in, uh, in what we do. There was a bit of reminiscence, because I was told there was going to be reminiscence, which I don't object to. I, I try to minimize that. I'm not cutting out the questions. I think it's your, uh, I'm quite happy. You'll get me, you soon get any old goffer going uh, once you ask them to reminisce. But most veteran politicians reminisce all the time uh, and tell the same stories over and over again and insist on saying when they're faced with a problem, I remember the last time we did that and all that. And you're becoming an aged deputy secretary in the civil service once you do that. Uh, and so I do try to concentrate on the now and the future keep myself in active politics but I won't need much encouragement and I won't be reserved and if you prod my memory with the questions I'll do my best to say what I hope you'll all find interesting things but thank you very much for having me along okay, Just before we get I too would like to add my um, brief memory of Morris who I knew obviously less well uh, than, than Kevin and other colleagues in the European Institute but uh, in the brief time I knew him at the end of uh, his life, he was a wonderful colleague to work with, so I just added that myself. Now, you, you've sort of encouraged me almost to encourage you to reminisce, and what I want to do is pick up on one or two of the things you've already hinted at, and they include what I'm interested in probing some of the changes in the way government has operated in the 48 years that you've watched from uh, very close to. And one obvious thing to get going on, and I, I want to keep it off Brexit and Europe for a bit, though I suspect we'll get there at some point somehow, um, but collective cabinet responsibility, an axiom of the way British government has functioned for a very long time, which clearly at the moment is not functioning in quite the way it once did. And in fairness, I suspect that started before uh, the current government and parliament. But is that true? I mean, is it the case that the, the notion of collective responsibility in cabinet and all that went with it in terms of driving a majority government in this particular kind of political system, that that is now very differently envisaged and handled by your erstwhile colleagues as they still exist? Well, it's all changed. I mean, it's been transformed since I started, which, uh, and, and, and so I had to be careful, because uh, every time I find myself saying uh, things are not what they were, you know, and particularly on things, and in this area, where you'll rapidly pick up the idea, I don't think there is 
you know, satisfactory as they were, although there was a lot wrong with the system always, um, I count to ten because I tell myself, well, absolutely every veteran when I first entered politics was busy saying, you know, things of going to the dogs, it's not what it was and all that. So if I slip into that, forgive me. But uh, I mean, the key thing, first of all, is uh, because I'm such a political addict that I've stayed there for such a long time, I mean, the whole political scene and the nature of politics is, is transformed, including cabinet government. Uh, it's, it's completely transformed. The House of Commons I entered, the governments I served in, I served in the Heath government as whip, helping get a majority for us to go into the European community. Uh, it was a different world, different people, uh, different conventions. Uh, Parliament was much more powerful than it is today. Uh, government was a smaller number of people, but cohesive, and uh, they worked very collectively, and all the rest of it. Cabinet, the cabinet's changed. The cabinet's role's being reduced very rapidly. Um, Margaret, I didn't get into the cabinet uh, until Mar- I entered Margaret's in 1985, I think. Um, and uh, I went in, my first job was the Department of Employment. Uh, and and so I served in Margaret's cabinets for about six years. That was a very genuinely system of collective cabinet government. Uh, we, we, she wouldn't have two meetings a week, which Ted had had. We had one meeting a week, but it was for a whole morning. Uh, and we discussed how we... First, it was dominated very much by Parliament, because Parliament mattered more to the government then. So, so how are we going to handle things in Parliament, we started quite a long discussion, and then we would discuss issues of the day, and we'd clear policy with collective decision. Most decisions, collective policy-making, which was religiously done, was done in a huge system of cabinet committees. Now, we all were on cabinet committees, different committees, and uh, if you couldn't get your policy cleared through cabinet committee, you'd probably bring it to the cabinet and get cabinet clearance and sort it out. And you'd change. I actually think it was very beneficial. I had quite a lively time sometimes with things I wanted to do. And the questions that your colleagues asked often were some of the most challenging you faced. And they'd make you think uh, about the content and also actually about what was going to happen when you started presenting all this. Uh, and so that's how we all worked. Uh, and uh, Margaret ran it in her own particular style, and more of that if you like, uh, but the idea was sometimes you had very vigorous discussions uh, and on big subjects sometimes. Uh, and at the end of it, collective responsibility. Uh, I did have sometimes some things, very particular things. You'd think, my clearing a little later my health reforms with Margaret, I had one-to-one personal rows with her over weeks and weeks before finally she agreed. Off we went, and she led off then and took it through the cabinet and as though the fact she'd been ferociously disagreeing with me the early stages of our discussions, we, we got sorted out eventually. Thereafter, uh, she, she was dedicatedly loyal. I mean, she wouldn't, not a, because I was becoming one of the most unpopular people in the United Kingdom, but she, she got the wind up and, and so on, but she, she, she still didn't anyway seek to undermine me. And it would have been unthinkable for even the people in Cabinet who had been ferociously arguing against the decision to go out and challenge it. Now... It's gone now. Uh, they, they, they sit for less than an hour now, I think. They, 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 they Blair changed it all. He couldn't understand what cabinet was for. It wasn't what he intended to write it. He was a huge fan of uh, American government, 
uh, and he started this business of, uh, they just had a presentation from Alistair, the first meeting to the astonishment of the then cabinet secretary, I'm told, uh, the, the, all, all they had was uh, Alistair Campbell uh, lecturing the cabinet on lines to take with the media for the coming week. And that was the meeting. Uh, and and the, the, the cabinet secretary said afterwards, but, you know, shouldn't we be discussing other things, Tony? Prime Minister, what, what other things? Uh, well, I gather the Chancellor's about to announce the independence of the Bank of England. Shouldn't we discuss that? What's it got to do with them? <laughs> uh, very, very well informed. I knew most of the civil servants in those days, the senior ones. I'd just left office. That was my very well informed. You probably made it a racier story, but they never resumed cabinet government. We don't have cabinet government now. If you, if you want to put a policy forward now as a minister, you have to clear it with the army of apparatchiks in number 10, who will tell you whether Downing Street approves of that or not. I will get you to put it, get its slot in the grid when you're going to be given permission to announce it. Uh, and, and we'll want to clear the text of the statement you're making and we'll alter it to suit things and give you the slogans that you've got to repeat all the time and all that. And that's it. Uh, little groups of them still have great rows. I'm sure they have some lively meetings in these little ca- committees he's formed uh, over Brexit at the moment. But then the losing faction go out and denounce the ideas that have just been carried uh, by the others. And it, and so I'll stop being the old golfer. I'm sure it's a much improved modern system of government. <laughs> Reflecting today's realities, but I, I'm not convinced. It's a fairly lightweight system, it seems to me. It's, pre, it's a lightweight presidential system, and I am partisan enough to blame Blair, really, introducing it. And Blair was rather forced to develop it because the warfare going on between him and Gordon Brown all the way through meant he couldn't revert to collective government anyway. And it, it's, it's dead. Cabinet's become a bit vestigial now. And most of the public couldn't name half the members of the cabinet because they're never allowed to go out and say anything in public. And just going from the cabinet to the role of the member of parliament, which again you've watched personally for 48 years, I mean, that's also altered out of all recognition, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. In ways. Well, the, the members of parliament, firstly, the actual the, the, the social basis of policy. Uh, of party politics all those years ago is very different. The, most of the public followed their party as, as they followed a football team. Uh, so very few people changed their minds in elections. The swings of three percent regards quite significant and all that. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the social makeup of the parties was reflected. So we had lots and lots of people from the shires, great men, landed interests, a bit of inherited money young children of aristocrats uh, and so on uh, the, 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 and, and we had uh, you know, quite a few of the bourgeoisie and businessmen uh, and I was one of the generation of young, keen idiotically ambitious you know, 11 plus lads uh, there was a whole wave of us came into the Conservative Party at about the time I did on the other side there were lots of working class members I, I'd fought mining towns uh, as a Conservative candidate in Nottinghamshire, and my great friend was the last bloke who beat me there, Don Concanon. He, 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 he was one of 35 miners. He'd finished his last shift at Clipston Colliery uh, two weeks into the campaign because the previous members stood down at the last minute, and there were lots of genuine... And they were, of course, with them with the ha- hamstered intellectuals. 
uh, who provided most of the ministers and ran the party. It was, uh, and with all the same tensions in their party there are now. But you make out that the style was different. Some MPs never made a speech. Uh, some very good, the very good MP, Labour MP for Nottingham East. He, he served in my locality. He was a very good local MP for about ten years. Didn't do much locally. Owned the football club. That's why he, he bought the Labour Party and installed an agent. And he bought the football club at the same time and took up uh, an interest in Nottingham. And he left the House of Commons to go off and be chairman of the football league. And he never made a maiden speech. And I used to tease him about it. Well, he didn't make speeches, didn't like doing that. But, <laughs> but, but, but it was a political village, and he was quite influential in that political village. People know what his views were. That's where everything... We all lived on top of each other uh, day and night, uh, and ministers and everybody else. And that's, he was quite uh, influential. There was no constituency duties. Uh, most members of Parliament didn't go to their constituency, and they certainly didn't live in it. Uh, the standard old boy on my side visit to the constituency was once a year, off to the constituency in Lancashire or somewhere, station master would turn out to greet them with the top hat and tails on, uh, and he'd have lunch with the mayor and a few local dignitaries, shake hands all round, post for the local f- uh, newspaper, go back to London. And there were no constituency. We weren't doing the Citizens Advice Bureau work, which takes up half our time and more now. Uh, I started, because I was young, keen, and you know, tedious, and I started holding surgeries, but had to explain to my party members what a surgery was, that we were going to put posters up and invite people to come give their problems of having anything with government. Not when he did at first, but he built up. I got about six letters a week, and I shared a secretary, the only member of staff I had, with two other members of parliament, uh, and we hadn't got an office because nobody in Parliament could think what on earth you need an office for as a member of Parliament, so I didn't have an office. And she'd turn up and I'd meet her in the committee corridor and she'd sit next to me with her pad on her knee, short, shorthand, and I'd dictate replies. And I'll stop reminiscing, all this is in my memoirs, but, but it's all true. And I remember an old Labour MP walking past and, and asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm answering my constituents' letters. He said, whoa... I just chuck them in bin. <laughs> because nobody thought it was the job of an MP to do these things. I mean, they, they would tell their actors, well, I'm, I, you go to one of your councillors. I'm, I'm not on the council, and all this kind of thing. And they, they were engaged in national politics, holding the government to account. And now the two party machines encourage new members of parliament to stop bothering with the national politics, just obey the whips, learn the slogans, and that's it and encourage them to spend all their time running job fairs and, and things in their constituencies and just doing self-publicising little things in the, the local media. Uh, and uh, Actually, you can do a lot of quite valuable work on behalf of constituents. I've adjusted to the times. But I, I sometimes worry that some members of Parliament don't really interest themselves in national politics very much. They're spending all their time arguing about where the bus stops are. <laughs> and it's... I won't go on. I'm warming up. If I give long answers like this at this stage, God knows whether we're ever finished. But there, there we are. <laughs> um, it, it, I think I said enough to show that it's a totally transformed system of parliamentary democracy and collective government from the one that I was familiar with for, well, at least first, the, the, the constituency thing started changing rapidly when I arrived. The 
actual nature of collective government, oh, like that for the first 10, 30 years, 20, 30 years, I was in. It's only changed since Blair, which he took all these American experts and advice in from the Obama campaign. Mm, the West Wing was very influential, I guess. So, um, the, in this career, I mean, we're now living through the unravelling of a major UK policy moment, if I can put it delicately like. And I don't want to go on to that one. I want to look back at some of the big ones that you handled during the, or you were involved with in the um, Thatcher major year. So the Falklands War, minor strikes, Westland, poll tax, uh, dear to my heart, as it were, and then the fall of Mrs. Thatcher herself and Black Wednesday. And it, I mean, look back at a long line of these uh, massive events. Yep. And as you look back on them now, did they seem that big? Were they, were they, you know, were they overblown at the time? Are there all these things overblown at the moment they happen? <clears throat> well, most of those were big things, really. They I were. mean, the reason I enjoy politics is it's impossible to predict it. Uh, and it's really a permanent, permanent state of decision-making and permanent crisis. You have to be careful to keep the crises in proportion because everybody starts running around like headless chickens uh, over things which really aren't that formidable and everybody will have forgotten about in a fortnight anyway and so on. The ones you named were, were all pretty important and there's a consciousness of that. Uh, and, and so the, the, the system has to cope with it and so on. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean we're generalising about a lot of very different political problems but... Th- the difference is nowadays, the debates and the policy making, I think, are more short term and overexcited and media dominated. Uh, in those days, uh, th- th- it was a continuing process, but yeah, my God, they were quite a crisis. One, two of those, for instance, and I, you know, I had a pretty close up front row seat at quite a few of them, and, and uh, you know, I still look back thinking, well, that was quite an interesting moment, uh, really. Uh, and some of them, not most of the ones you mentioned had no lasting, I think, effect on society or the country. Now, the Thatcher government had quite long-lasting effects on the society and country. That was because of our continuous policy thing. And, and that was a result of all the arguments we had and the way we did things. And, uh, but, but, yeah, they were, they were pretty big. I wouldn't generalise them, but more collectively. Right. I'm going to move on. I'm going to hand over to Kevin in a moment. Just two other things. One is that... I mean, Famously, the Conservative Party, I mean, Stanley Baldwin's take on, was it, I think Baldwin said, you know, I'd rather be an opportunist and float than go to the bottom with my principles around my neck or something like that. I mean, the Conservative Party famously stayed in, has stayed in office for so long, on and off, because of its uh, arguably lack of a, a sort of powerful ideological base. It's a practical party, not driven by ideology. And as you look at it, moving forward since Mrs Thatcher's time, possibly starting with Mrs Thatcher, do you see it's lost some of that advantage as a non-ideological party and now contains people who are much more ideological, driving at least part of it? Well, I, did, I don't think it's changed that much. I mean, I, it, at the moment, it's, it's going to a bizarre period. We had those before. Um, but, but the... I think most people in the Conservative Party, they're all agree. The way we always put it is it's a pragmatic party. Uh, and I think the difference between the two big parties, firstly, remember, our parties are great coalitions. They wouldn't be single parties. 
in any other country in Europe. It's our first-past-the-post system, which I give, think has the desirable effect of producing pre-packed coalitions with a very broad range of opinion in both of them who would not be in the same party. I mean, people who've heard me before have heard me. I, the example I always cite, because it's safe for a Tony, is you know, the idea that Tony Blair and George Galloway could be in the same political party for 20 years. Only in the British system could you do that. <laughs> and when to, then the two-party system worked, two pre-packed coalitions were presented, and you were really being asked to choose which you like most or dislike least, and that coalition would go into office if it got the majority. And we held to get the party loyalty discipline. Now, in the case of the Conservative Party, apart from being, on the whole, a right-of-centre party against left-of-centre alternative, usually most Western democracies, uh, and then we were pretty right-of-centre, going off into the hard right, just as the other side's left-of-centre going off into the hard left, um, the, 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 the key thing is, one thing that unites us actually is we do wish to be in power. Now, a part of that is no doubt self-aggrandizement and ambition, but really I think it's quite justified because the, if you're in the Conservative Party you become a professional politician, you're wanting to make a difference. So the whole point is you're trying to get your lot into government and do something. And, and, and that, of course, has a tremendous cohesive effect. That's why you have to accept that, you know, you've got to compromise, you've got to form a collective view, uh, you, you've got to make sure you're not, you know, all the rest of it. And through the crises, the secret weapon of loyalty is mounted really because pretty well every Conservative MP wants to contribute to a situation where our party is in power. Now, the Labour Party, very similar in many ways, but funny enough, uh, they're more, slightly more ideological, and they have quite a large part of the membership who, to an outsider like me, being in power is not the most important thing. Uh, the campaigning is the most important power, uh, a part of the whole thing. And they make no conscious effort, the more way out ones, in their case on the left, they've ever made any conscious effort really to... They may think they're helping their party get into power, but it's not in a way that's approved of by their colleagues. And they're, they're, it's far more important to them to have the battle and to one day, you know, to win for the fight for the cause and so on. So, uh, and winning comes second. Uh, and, and that, I think, was the difference between the two parties and ours. Uh, when, all, when push comes to shove, there is a kind of collective agreement. Look, we, we, do, we do want our party to hold office, even if we're not totally agreed on what exactly we want to do when we hold office, but we will all work together to try and ensure we're usually in office. I've been lucky enough to have a career which coincided with them being quite successful in doing that. Now, just, you touch on another issue, which is that our political system, these two large block coalition parties, also works by those parties' leaders having the support of the members in the House of Commons. Now, both parties have changed the way they choose their leaders. And at the moment, we're living in a very odd period where, arguably, the, M the majority of MPs, or certainly a substantial minority of MPs in both these parties, by and large, don't want the leader they've got, which is very odd for this political system. Is, that, is, that, can, is there a parallel to this in your memory? No, it's one of the many changes, I say... I, I probably got this simplistic view that it's, it's the 
It was the change to the Blair. The, the John Major government belonged more to the old era that I remember. It, it was the change to Blair. And I, I'm not just being partisan, thanking Tony. He was a, if he hadn't, but for the Iraq War, he would have been a pretty good Prime Minister. And, 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 like, actually, I wasn't quite sure why he was ever in the Labour Party. I agree with him. <laughs> So I'm not being, but he just had a different view of government. And the two parties, both there was a silly fashion for making the parties democratic. In the case of the Labour Party, it was an anxiety to stop being dominated by the trade unions. In our party, it was just a, you know, modern populist campaigning. And so both parties have saddled themselves with utterly, utterly idiotic constitutions, uh, which can lead to the situation whereby the leader of the party is not the leader that their parliamentary party would choose. To be fair, uh, both parties at the moment are split and in crisis and all the rest of it. Actually, I'm quite convinced that the majority of the parliamentary party, my, my, on my side, would want Theresa to be leader rather than any of the likely alternatives. LAUGHTER uh, so, uh, not, not at the moment. She's not winning, perhaps, the most you know, overwhelming you know, support, but I actually think the only people who are trying to undermine her at the moment are the people who think they're going to replace her, but they have a narrow political base, and the majority of the party would very much not want any of them in Parliament. Now, in the Labour Party, I quite agree. I mean, most of my Labour friends are not, because imagine the sort of Labour friends I have, not that all my friends agree with my parts at all, but they tend to be the more Blairite, moderate ones. I mean, they're all in despair. They kept, because about three quarters of the parliamentary party, of course, would never dream of having uh, dear old Jeremy and MacDonald as the leader, and there's nothing they can do about it. So all these daft constitutions they gave themselves in the 1990s and 2000s. One final point for me, short and sharp. We were talking about this before we started. You're the father of the longest-standing member of the House of Commons, though presumably there's a slight sense of luck that it's new, not Dennis Skinner, but... I'm, I, I, I protect the part of the House of Commons from Dennis Skinner by 25 minutes. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I was sworn in. Apparently, they, told, they told, us, told me that I was sworn in 25 minutes before he was. So it makes me this daft title of being father of the House. As far as I'm aware, I have nothing to do with the paternity of any of them. <laughs> when you became an M- M- MP, the father of the House had been in, the then father, had been in Parliament since... 1929, Sir Robin Turton, who was a Knight of the Shah, a very distinguished one, uh, from Yorkshire. Uh, and uh, so he'd been there. Great crash all the way through the 1930s. There were a lot of members who'd been in, not a lot, quite a significant number of members on both sides who'd been there during the 30s. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it just... That puts in perspective the human lifespan. It is... I'm now reaching the age where... Firstly, I wince every time anybody points out to me how long it is since something happened, which I recall, you know. Uh, and that, that, but but that also how much things change in every way in the lifespan of one human being if he or she is lucky enough to reach a reasonably old age. I mean, the, the world is a different place to the one I was born up in the... 
wartime and post-war England. I followed the politics of the Attlee government. The first time that I was dotty and political addict was following politics closely when I was in short trousers reading the newspapers. <laughs> Inevitably, I'd like to ask some questions about uh, Europe, uh, but uh, in particular focusing on your period in government, in the Thatcher government, and then uh, I want to go on to the John Major period. When you served in Mrs. Thatcher's cabinet, you were identified very much as a supporter of the uh, Prime Minister, her wing of the party. You were never identified as a, as a I wet. Wasn't, I was wet. You were a wet? I was always a wet. Oh, okay. I, 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 absolutely uh, fine. I, the, the, uh, in any you event, told my friends that you, you never quite trusted me. She, uh, 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 one or two of my friends said, she always said to me, because he's not really one of us, ah, she would say. Okay, uh, okay. I want to link that it to... It just shows how the party's changed. You know? Ab- uh, absolutely. <laughs> and the fallibility of my memory. Our regards on... Uh, but I want to uh, come on to Mrs. Thatcher and uh, Europe... Uh, Of course, over time, Mrs. Thatcher's position on Europe uh, seemed to evolve quite substantially. We think of her in the 1975 referendum. We think of her signing up to the single European markets, etc. And then in 1988, her famous uh, Bruges speech, and then out of office, being identified very much increasingly uh, Eurosceptic. I wonder, in this period, working with Mrs. Thatcher, when did you become conscious that you had very different views on Europe? When did you noticeably diverge? You were unhappy with the Bruges speech? On, uh, no, the Bruges speech is all right. Yeah. The, the, everybody goes on about the Bruges speech. If it was given today, she'd be regarded as a Remainer. Indeed. Uh, th- th- things have moved on. The Bruges speech has just entered the, the, let's say, the slightly mythical status. She was intending it as a cautioning, you know, Eurosceptic, if you like, speech, but uh, she, she was pro-European most of the time I knew her. Uh, the, the, she wasn't. I was. I am an acolyte of uh, Geoffrey Howe. Uh, so she wasn't a pro-European like Geoffrey or me and all this. I mean, I'd, the party's always been pro-European. Since I joined, I joined it when, as a, impressed by Harold Wilkins, Harold Macmillan's application to join and in support of his application to join and all that. Uh, and she was pro-European to the extent, particularly the economic advantages. She was not ever enthused by the political idea of this being our base in the world and all the rest of it. She was suspicious of that, although people hadn't then developed these myths about federalism and all the rest of it. She didn't... uh, There was a bit of that about, but it wasn't taken very seriously. But she was extremely concerned. She never, in her period of office, remotely suggested that we might leave the European Union. It wouldn't have crossed her mind. It was taken for granted by all Conservatives. It was the setting uh, for us in Europe. And and so the economic developments... I mean, throughout our membership, we've always been the most influential member state on on things like trade and liberal economic reform and so on. We've been in the lead in that, I think, more than anybody else, really. And she certainly did that. Hence, the single market was a British project, which she was heavily involved in. Now, why did she change? I'm giving very long answers, I know. I did notice this change going on. She got more difficult. 
we were going through a great period in Europe. Europe goes through years and years of being in the doldrums and not doing anything, and then sudden periods of activity where it surges and the project develops and moves forward. And the days of Cole, Mitterrand, Delors, and Thatcher, those four were key people in what was going on. I mean, that's where a lot happened, mm. and the single market was our contribution. Now, she never really got on with Cole and Mitterrand. I think one reason was that they weren't quite, couldn't quite cope with working with a woman doing a proper job like this, and so they treated her with a certain amount of patronising disdain. They temperamentally, certainly Cole, could not have been more different from Margaret, and the two attempted to get courtesy terms. Cole re-aroused all her old father's views about Second World War views about Germans and all this. She had a real hang-up about Germans, but I think Helmut helped revive all these hang-ups about Germans. Uh, and she, we, 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 we drifted away. I think that was actually my impression, because I could see it happening at the time, was that was what causing her to take this increasingly difficult, hostile view. It came to its head when I discovered from one of Helmut's entourage, when I bumped into him as minister of something or other, at some European council, and one of the, my mates who I'd met from the Anglo-German conferences we used to hold, came up to me and said, what the hell's going on, and revealed to me that my prime minister in the capital which I served was trying to stop the reunification of Germany, which was news to me. Uh, she was apparently taking the view that, she, you know, that Germany was quite big enough and was not entitled to bring all these people into the European Union, blah, blah. So I went back and raised it at the next cabinet and set off a flaming argument in which I played a little role myself because absolutely nobody else had known that she was resisting the reunification of Europe, and she and Nick Ridley were in a minority of two, it rapidly appeared, thinking this was a good idea. But I think this was part of her emotional drift. She lost the plot by the end, obviously. Her, her old gris, grap, grasp had gone uh, when, she, when she lost office. She was now flying by the seat of her pants all the time and, and, uh, and, and no longer behaving in the sort of really powerful way she had earlier. And when she got thrown out, she was very hurt by her fall, bitterly hurt. Her friends persuaded her it had all been a European plot. It had nothing to do with her European views at all, just the bloody poll tax and the fact she was no longer running the government very sensibly. And nobody thought she could win an election if she carried on in 1992. That's why she went. Uh, but then after that, she got aged and embittered, sadly, began to suffer from dementia, and I think she was used a bit by the less attractive of her friends. Suddenly she got fixated with the idea that the world was a European plot from which she had to save us. Now, there was no trace of that when she was Prime Minister. That, that was not her political position throughout her active political career. She would, I have no idea which side of the referendum she'd be on if she'd alive today, but she, she'd never have would contemplate as serious politics the idea that we'd leave the European Union. Can I move on to John Major? Uh, you would have felt, I guess, much more comfortable with his approach at Maastricht and his general approach on uh, Europe. What strikes me, of course, is that um, during his period, Black Wednesday, Tony mentioned Black Wednesday, so many people in your party regarded Black Wednesday as a major catalytic event in terms of their <coughs> attitudes. After John Major um, uh, was out of office, after being uh, Prime Minister, 
Uh, he made speeches uh, recommending that the Conservative Party oppose entry into the single European currency on principle. Black Wednesday seems to have been so influential for many people. It wasn't for you. Why not? Well, it was symbolic, Black Wednesday. The, 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 the two things we'd always had a strong Eurosceptic element. I mean, we, we had a, 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 our old imperialist wing in the 70s. We were always opposed to, to, to Europe and so on. We'd always had anti-Europeans. Uh, the, the, what has now become for about the last 25 years the nervous breakdown that the Conservative Party has every time we mention Europe sort of started in the 90s it was Maastricht really uh, and two things set it off uh, and one was the, the, the referendum in I think Denmark uh, where temporarily at least they rejected the Maastricht Treaty so the tr- treaty was up till then been uncontroversial suddenly became a symbol uh, uh, for Eurosceptics here, and the other was Black Wednesday, which wasn't it, that significant an event. It was, it was caused by a, a complete failure to respond to what the ERM was and what its effect would be. We were beginning to regard it as a free ticket to spend German money, a bit like you know, the Greeks today. Uh, and we, we, we thought you know, currency problems and things were behind us. But, but uh, it, it set off all this wave of stuff. Now, the, the, the single currency, I was John's Chancellor uh, for the last four years, and ECOFIN was a terrific club I used to go to the Council of Finance Ministers, and one of our constant activities at practically every meeting was we were presiding over the preparations for the single currency, and we never stopped, the, the British government. We got on the fence about it. John had secured an opt-out at Maastricht, which meant we weren't obliged to join the single currency. And we kept open the question of a single currency. At one point, John wanted to have a referendum on it, and the, Michael Heseltine and I always agree the biggest mistake we ever made, political mistake we made in our lives, was because we got so, so upset that John was getting so miserable about this great idea which he thought was but we, we actually went along, we having resisted it fiercely before, that if we ever wanted to join, we'd hold a referendum on it. But we carried on preparing it. I still think... A single market uh, and a, 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 you know, with regulation and common customs barriers outside is the best way of running a, a modern economy for countries like ours. Uh, and the one, next step to, seemed to me to be to have a common means of exchange. One of the most disruptive things to trade across Europe, we, particularly in the old days, we don't have such currency problems anymore often, uh, was this mad volatility of currency markets which had dominated politics in the 70s and 80s. So we were going to have a single currency. And my defence of the position people like me took and the bulk of members of parliament uh, on our side really uh, was uh, my defence is that we spent years working out my ECOFIN, you know the one I served in, uh, rules strict rules. Germans in particular insisting on strict fiscal rules uh, no bailout clauses, uh, not, not adequate as they turned out, rules, monetary policy, everything else. It was very, very seriously drawn up order. Uh, you remember the Maastricht criteria? Mm-hmm. You weren't going to qualify for membership unless you had that degree of fiscal discipline and they were going to be binding on you when you joined, which I thought was a good idea because I'm a fiscal hawk anyway, and I thought there was just a statement of sensible free market economics to run things in that way. 
uh, and, and so on. Now, the moment they started the blasted single currency, I mean, just as we'd done with the ERM, our successors forgot all this. Uh, I mean, it was just the happy days were here now. It was a bonanza. Uh, they're letting countries who didn't qualify. I remember protesting, what the hell have you let Italy in for? Uh, Their debt is enormous. Oh, Rome, seat of ancient civilization, founder member of the Union, can't exclude Italy. The only hope you were ever going to get of sensible economic policy in Italy was aspiring to join the single currency, not letting them in on a free pass. They're nowhere near the Maastricht country. They're letting countries that weren't convergent, letting in Greece, Portugal. They're completely mad. Uh, and then they abandon all the rules. First people to throw the fiscal rules into the waste paper basket and forget, I keep calling it the Maastricht criteria, is what the British called it, uh, well, they were done by the Germans. Uh, Schroeder had an election to fight, uh, rather old-fashioned way, decided to spend a bit of money in the year before the election and then I get it back afterwards, so we got it. <laughs> Miles over 3% deficit for his election here. Well, Greeks and Italians don't need much encouragement. So I won't go on. But I still think it still needs a lot of reform. And whether Macron, I don't agree with everything Macron's saying, but Macron and Angela, if he stays much longer, I think will try to preside over the development of the single currency. But I know that the euro is totally doomed. It, it, and they're going to have to live with the people they should never have let in. They're slowly getting that way. But the, how you get the structural reform they need anyway, I'm not sure. But that, uh, I, I, I've gone on quite a number. The, the, the British debate about the single currency, is like so much of our European debate, is just childlike and corny and, and, and doesn't bear much relation to reality. I mean, half the debate in the House of Commons, uh, some of my backbenchers, it, raise any detail, you're just trying to reverse the referendum and not listening to the British people and any detailed point are you're undermining the Prime Minister in negotiations and if you make a pro-European remark oh you're going into the United States of Europe, you're destroying our sovereignty and all that, all of which is tosh. You're trying to deal with a rules-based globalised economy in a, a much smaller world politically, which is full of problems in which Europeans have to strive to keep some influential position. When we have a new Cold War between Europeans and Putin, when we have violence and disorder on all our borders, North Africa and the Middle East, you know, an immigration crisis which is hitting all of us uh, and is overwhelming the system in most European countries, including Britain, and so on. And the single market is just one of the many things where you listen to people talking about Black Wednesday and the single market, and in my biased opinion, they're usually talking, single currency, they're usually talking total tosh. And that reigns my view. Thank you. I'm conscious that uh, we've got a packed theatre of people who no doubt would like to ask uh, questions. So, so I can see everyone. I'm going to stand up, if you would uh, forgive me. Um, I think we have colleagues to sit down, but I'm going to sit at the front of the stage. Yes, we have colleagues in the red here. So if you could put up your hand, we'll take uh, three at a time, if that's okay. We'll take the gentleman here. 
Could you just say who you are and the question? Yes, John de Bono, TV producer, class of 77 to 80 at the LSE, and a great admirer of Ken Clark. However, I disagree. Good is, first question. Is, <laughs> not, not, isn't it very simple? Pragmatism. The country has seen uh, that this project doesn't really respond to crises very well. We wanted a, a single market, a European uh, economic area. We have now got a political construct. Macron is proposing the sort of solutions that will lead it to the wall. So therefore, when you ask a priori, uh, is it worth staying if we haven't been able to prevail? Probably not. Surely that's the uh, problem that we have now, the fact that the European Union uh, doesn't respond. We don't feel that we're not European. Okay, thank you. Is, um, someone just behind you here with the hat. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, I grew up in a working-class and middle-class family and watched over the years how both these communities have descended into deeper and deeper poverty. I think the only thing the factories and the Tory party have ever done is presided over an economic rape of these social groups, and now which is uh, sickeningly titled called austerity. So we have the UK with food banks, Glenfield, housing crisis, collapse of the National Health Service, etc., etc. Do you think the majority of your, do you think uh, you and the majority of colleagues in Parliament and business were educated in private schools, Eton and Oxbridge? Do you think that these schools have played an important role? in making it okay to become a monster whose collective actions have directly destroyed the middle and working class, okay, political you. and economic life, thank you. but over that's fine, that's personal fine. gain and profit. We've all understood that the tone of the question is slightly different from the first one. It's a totally different subject, yes. Um, can we take the... Can we take a third one? We're taking the third one, yeah. yeah can we take the uh, ladies The questions get even longer. In the, the centre, in the white. Yeah, could you pass the microphone uh, along, please? The lady here. Thank you. Uh, Anne Perkins from The Guardian. I, I, you just painted a really bleak picture of the challenges facing um, the economy, and I wondered what you thought that your party has to do if it's to win again. Well, three startling different questions. So, so the, the first one was the European one, so let me just give my answer to that. It's always been a political project. What's the word go? Well, the, the, all, I mean... On all sides of arguments, people sustain themselves by, by myths and things that hold them together. Uh, and when they lost the 1975 election uh, referendum, one of the myths that the Eurosceptics started creating and have built up ever since was that the public only voted to stay in. We don't have to take notice of that referendum because they were misled. They were told it's just an economic project and they turned out to be political and all the rest of it. Well, I never heard such nonsense. Uh, I, 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 because I was the whip, I, I sat through hours and hours of the debate on the European Communities Bill in 1972. I, I said, I could go back for campaigns that Macmillan ran. It was political, it, it was, and it was economic, but the political was just as important. The reason someone like me got influenced was in the 1960s, the country was reduced to a laughing stock. Suez had a huge effect on me. The idea that we were returning to pre-war politics uh, when we'd obviously already lost most of the influence we'd ever had and were still defending our route to India and all this was completely laughable. It was a fiasco. The economy was becoming a laughing stock and we were being left behind by, by uh, uh, rivals. And it was, 
Because of the changed nature of the, the wreckage of the post-war Europe and we were all broke and all having to rebuild, actually beginning to work collectively was part of it and the political clout we might retain vis-a-vis the Russians and the Americans in the Cold War and all that was as much part of the whole thing as the economic stuff was. And the economic stuff actually went on to develop. At first it was a very loose, custom, rather slight customs union. It was, we deepened the economic part of the union when they did respond to British efforts to move to regulatory convergence and things, as I keep pointing out, the single market when we went the whole hog and finally moved into having regulatory convergence. The British Commissioner, Margaret, sent out, drew up the first thousands and thousands of harmonized regulations to represent and replace all the separate ones on every product and service. That, that, that was when the economy took off. Uh, and so I don't accept that, 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 that okay. premise in the slightest. And I think nothing that has happened since has changed the case. Uh, with the emergence of China, India, Brazil, the great powers of the future alongside the Americans and the, uh, the, the, the Russians. Uh, if we go back just being the little nation states uh, of uh, pre-war Europe, uh, I'm afraid Europe will be one of those places where we'll have some influence. We've reduced our influence with this referendum. Uh, we're fringe players at the G7 now. Nobody abroad takes much notice of the British government's opinion uh, on things where we aren't immediately involved. Uh, and I think the, the case was never, never. It's always anti-European, to say it was. Now, on the social thing, I, I'm going to give, if you have such different questions, it's not difficult. Um, well, I believe in free market with a social conscience. Uh, and, but you need to have a successful market economy before you can actually uh, create a, a proper, you know, welfare state, uh, and, and, and provide a safety net for those who, in problems who need support and actually uh, provide proper living standards. Uh, living standards in this country have not declined, but, but poverty, it's transformed in my lifetime, living standards. Uh, but, but poverty is, of course, a relative matter. And I think the mistake that people like me, and I have to accept at some stage I joined the establishment, I come from an impeccably working class background, when we thought everything was really becoming, settling down, the great normality of the 1990s, the great time when there was a surge of confidence in market economics, it was distributing benefits, the, state, the country's living standards, every level being transformed. We, we, with hindsight, the reason it contributed to the present crisis is we didn't notice that some people were benefiting a lot more than others. We were aware of the sense of great success that the, uh, the successful, the professional, the business people were all experiencing. We attributed the decline of the Rust Belt parts of the country to, well, it's technological change. It was. I mean, the death of the mining industry was totally inevitable. It had nothing to do with Margaret Thatcher. Most of the pits had closed long before Margaret became Prime Minister. Uh, but we just didn't realize, well, what are we going to do? You know? And uh, looking back, the angry rage we now face against all politicians, but some of them against us, are because we, 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 we're conscious of the fact that the disappointed, the left behind, 
We're getting ever more angry with the politicians. And then when we allowed huge disparities of income to start developing because corporate salaries were allowed to go mad in, in the 20 hundreds, as mad now at the top, suddenly you had some ostentatiously wealthy nouveau riche, who, some of whom behave rather bizarrely in public, making people more sensitive about the fact that, well, my family, I haven't got any of this, I don't think there's nothing for my kids here, nobody bothers about me, and that is a very strong attitude in every Western country. The financial crash of 2007 put the tin lid of it on it, and we still haven't actually put in place the economic policies to get through. Uh, what do we need to do to win the election? I'll give you a brief answer. It's just, uh, to, 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 um, come out of the Brexit thing as quickly as we can, get it over with, uh, but only on sensible terms. Uh, just give a little thought to the vast amounts of detail. Of course, the public are driven up the wall, can't understand why we left. There are hundreds of questions that are posed once the question, do you leave, has been answered. Hundreds of questions that the public would normally never have been asked because you don't normally have a wild public debate about the rules about aviation and pharmaceuticals uh, clearance and we do a bit on animal welfare but not much on food standards I could go on and security and defense cooperation all that all this has got to be sorted out get through it and put in place something that is okay doesn't cause disaster then spend the last 18 months getting back to mainstream politics, having policies on other subjects, showing that you actually have got some ideas you can deliver, which are going to do a, you know, what the best government's done in the past, make a visible difference to, to actually things like education and skills training is absolutely vital, but education generally and all the rest of it, to get back to mainstream politics. We, we might have a chance of winning. The moment, uh, the only thing going for us is, is, is the fact that the Labour Party's gone mad and has put an old Ben follower in charge, and his, his honeymoon period is all over now. The, uh, the Glastonbury moments, I think, <laughs> seem a distant uh, recollection. He's obviously completely unsuitable to be Prime Minister. Uh, and so the public are a bit perplexed at the moment. They, they dislike all of us, so just complete disdain. But okay. I think Corbyn's unelectable, so we might have a chance. We might <laughs> have a chance. Okay, thanks. Let's have another round. Uh, gentleman here, uh, please. If you could make the questions very short, please. Yes, sorry, I, I know I may, my answers are getting longer and longer, aren't they? <laughs> well, Graham Bishop, uh, hopefully a, a short answer. Um, the, the, could you reflect on why it is that the older generation seems to become so anti-European? You talked about Mrs. Thatcher's views. Um, Churchill was the icon of post-war generation, uh, launched the European ideal. How is it that the older generation has become so turned off Europe? Okay, thank you. Then there's the lady behind you. Yep. Hello. Um, I just wondered um, for how many more years you can see yourself being an MP for. How, well, what's name? How many more years of being an MP? <laughs> and then can we thank the gentleman here who already has the microphone? Uh, I'm one of thousands of civil servants who must have uh, worked with you over the decades. You are uniquely well placed, I would say, to offer some comments on the way the civil service has changed over 40 years. Could you tell us how your perception of changes in relations between
between ministers and civil servants and changes in the nature of the civil service itself since the 1970s. Okay, thanks. I, I agree with you that I'm, I'm typical of my generation and it's the older generation's views that obviously tipped the referendum. I mean, my view on the referendum, uh, the, result was, the, the result was, amongst the politically aware members of the public, who are quite a lot, the average member of the public is perfectly sensible, takes a, an intelligent interest in things, tried to form a serious opinion, and, you know, they broke, some leave, some remain, and so I'm not being rude about everybody who voted on one side or the other. What tilted it and made the slight majority was angry protest or reaction amongst the elderly to an astonishing degree. My contemporaries were hev heavily Eurosceptic. And very briefly, uh, my theory, I have two broad categories. One is the aging, embittered, white working class in the Rust Belt areas. I come from the North Midlands. The further north you went, the more you encountered this. The more you encountered this. Uh, and and they, 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 they're very anti-immigrant but on the whole, just you know, embittered. Uh, and then the, the Tory Shire voters, um, the world had changed too much. Uh, it, you know, well, it, all this complication, you know. It was so much nicer in the 1960s and 70s, you know. Why don't we just go back to running the country normally? Why are we bothered with all these people? Uh, and there were big numbers of those. Take back control, they thought was marvellous. Life was going to be simple again and, and we'd go back just having you know, somebody like Harold Macmillan in charge. Now, my recollection of the standard of life and conditions in this country in the 1960s is not as rosy as that of my contemporaries, but that's what many of them believe. Uh, and so they pushed them over the 50%, I think, and gave them the majority. It's part of what's happening in all Western democracies the angry, embittered, anti-political protest voting. It's caused by life being so complicated and the politicians not producing simple solutions. And the pace of change is accelerating like mad and the casualties all over the place uh, to technological and economic revolutions that are, you know, really are changing the world. Uh, and they've reacted like mad. And the one thing they like, and again, it's also today's short-term hysterical politics, uh, you've got to have a nice, simple solution. You've got to have a scapegoat. So in America, Mexicans. Uh, you sweep to power, sweeping aside both political parties, it's Mexicans. If it hadn't been for Macron emerging on a sort of rather more civilised protest uh, vote, and he swept away all the old politicians, we'd have had Marine Le Pen. Uh, Arabs. It's all the Arabs. And, and uh, she was a better part. The British are nicer than that. Uh, so the British, it was Brussels. <laughs> uh, it's not that our governments are broadly, they, they are as far as they're used as our governments, all because they're run from Brussels. Everything's run from Brussels. You know, you can frighten your children with young Claude Juncker. <laughs> and uh, they, they, I think, were the two, I mean, very generalized, obviously, and, and just give me a, but I think they're my theories as to why, to the amazement of every pundit, I mean, this sort of politics, opinion polls are useless. People only make their, decide what the hell they're going to vote about 24 hours before they bother to go along and vote and things. And none of the old patterns work. and the, it, It's completely broken down. Uh, I, but that's my explanation, and I think of why the older generation uh, uh, dislike 
what they see has happened and blame the establishment and politicians for it. Uh, I kind of completely forgotten the other two. The how, seven, long, how long do you um, oh, that can, plan I to be I can give a short answer. I said I was not going to stand again when I last fought the 2015 election. And then uh, Theresa, somewhat unwisely, uh, called another election uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, and so as I explained to my bewildered constituents, no doubt, uh, uh, I, 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 I had to decide for myself, uh, that am I going to retire three years earlier than I was expecting, or do I prefer to put it off for a couple of years uh, and do what I thought was my, my, my final appointment? And that's where I am now. I'm not going to do that again. I think this Parliament may well linger, could even do the full term because about the only thing MPs in the House of Commons are completely agreed on across most sides is they don't want a general election, and the public would be furious if we called a general election. Um, so, so you never know, I might go that far. But I have no intention of going on uh, into my 80s until uh, it is completely obvious I'm incapable of doing it properly anymore, and my best friends are trying to persuade me to pack it in. So any luck, I'll keep in one piece for as long as this Parliament lasts. And the, the other last question is uh, reflections on the civil service over time. Yeah, well, that's a huge, big, important subject. Uh, I, I have a highest regard for the British civil servant. It's cha- it is changing. I get worried. You may gather it's a bee in my mind. I go back to the, the, the modern style of government and the, the, what, what's happened under the Blair, Cameron and the present government. The, the, this, there's now this huge entourage of political appointees all over the place. And everything's dominated by public relations and press handling and so on. Uh, And policy creating, if you're not careful, is entirely dependent on responding to the Daily Mail and the Sun and, and, you know, this week's crisis. And, And... the great British civil service, I think, is not actually able to play the role that it used to play and ought to play. Uh, I, I, I ran... I, every, very odd, by the way. Every minister must have run this department differently because no-one trained you, and you worked out for yourself how you were going to do it if you find yourself a minister. First find out where the building is, uh, and, then, and then have a private secretary who explain to you what a private secretary is, and then it'll go from there. Get it. Uh, and, and Tony Teasdale, who worked with me for years as a political advisor, with the, the, the only one I had at the time, um, the, 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 I, think I, I think I ran the department in terms of a debating society, but I had... Firstly, I'm very impulsive, I know I am, quite combative, quite impulsive, but I was prepared to argue, and I love arguing. So, great long arguing sessions. I did take on board the expertise of the civil service, undoubtedly could influence me, but I also could have a friendly battle with the civil service when they didn't want me to change something, but you did have to work it through properly and sensibly. And I think the relationship was, was absolutely crucial. I'm greatly very grateful to the civil servants I worked with. There's a slight tendency now for the political class to regard the civil service as a kind of enemy, uh, which is, you know, stopping this bloke who's come out of a think tank putting out a press release or is trying to develop a policy which isn't in the grid and, 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 and uh, is not approved of and all that. And I know quite a lot of civil servants getting quite frustrated. Foreign Office have been for years 
uh, with the situation they're in and the idea that, that, that they're not, you know, I whether anybody in the Foreign Office thinks they're involved in policy at the moment, I've no idea. There have been several times in the last 10, 15 years when they haven't. Uh, and uh, that goes to you know, other departments as well. As Tony would like that to. feeling is quite strong. Yeah. And if all you've got is ministers who give you their political slogans and then go off and talk with their press officer about what they can get number 10 to clear for the next public contribution they're going to make, um, you know, it's a bit frustrating if you've got a great public service. It somewhat works, because it depends on the ministers in the end, uh, whether they're capable of having and want to have a civilised relationship with the civil servants of Wortham. And, of course, there's the daily business of the department, which they're almost left to get on with too much now, because the politicians don't bother with that. So when some frightful pig's ear is made with... On, with Windrush immigrants or something, nobody has a bloody clue, you know, quite how this is happening. No I'm conscious of, of time. Tony would like very to... Briefly, don't, I, mean, I know there are others. others. I'm going to... <laughs> on this very subject of the civil service, do you think that, I mean, some, if there were to be any shortcomings from the Brexit process, then do you think the civil service is being lined up to be blamed for not implementing what was otherwise a really good idea? Uh, by the right-wing politicians, yes. They're Brexiteers, yes. Uh, but, I mean, it would be ludicrous, utterly ludicrous okay. uh, to do that. Thank you. That's They're all tearing their hair out. They're waiting to be told what the minister... This is often not the first time it's happened. What, what the civil servants need, I think most civil servants would agree, is ministers who know what they want to do and are prepared to explain it in a sensible, grown-up way and work on the, actually the details of following up what's actually needed to do this. And there are too many examples, have been, not just currently, but over the last 10 years or more, of civil servants sitting around waiting for the minister to show the slightest sign of knowing what he or she actually wants to do and paying some attention to the, what actually is the, the business in hand at the moment. And it's happened under both parties, and, and it's just the changing nature of the political process. Let's try to... Um add a couple of more questions. There's someone at the very uh, end of the row upstairs. Thank you, James Lenton from Highgate Wood School. Um, I would like to hear uh, whether you think that GDP is the best way, um, is the best tool for assessing uh, an economy's performance. Okay. GDP is the best way of measuring a country's performance. And then the gentleman at the front here, please. It seems to me one of the failures of your Remain colleagues has been their lack of courage in challenging the principle of the use of a referendum in our constitution. Um, where do you stand on the use of a referendum? Not the result of a referendum, but the use of a referendum. And if you disagree with the use of a referendum, does it not conflict and challenge the result of the make the result in that. Okay. Two very short... Uh, GDP growth is a perfectly valuable statistic, uh, one of the more important ones, but I agree with this. 
Just without repeating all I said about the mistakes I think we made in the 1990s and not looking in more depth in what was happening and the concept we were doing. But there are lots of other things to tell you about the health of an economy as well. It's only one of many things. I mean, if you're not getting GDP growth, or if your GDP growth is falling and looks pretty miserable, well, there's probably a lot wrong. Uh, but it's no good just thinking, oh, as long as we're going at 3%, everything in the garden's lovely, because there are all kinds of short-term things. And also, the measurement of GDP, I mean, it's no good thinking this is some scientifically accurate measure of some precisely measurable thing. That, that, that gets improved every now and again. We do have the Office of National Statistics is very good innovation. We do have independent statisticians trying to improve it. But uh, it, I, don't, I give you an ambiguous reply. It's an extremely important indicator, but for heaven's sake, don't think that's the only measurement of economic health in every way, not only distribution, but economic performance. It doesn't tell you all you need to know about how you're performing. So I, I agree with that. On the second one, now I've always been against referendum. A ludicrous way of running a modern country. No, no serious uh, Western modern democracy has referendums. Uh, and in America, they're a bit cursed with them in California, but for years it used to make California ungovernable. Uh, and to, to, to have a referendum, I mean, I've made no secret of this. Uh, none of my constituents thought I was going to change my lifelong principles and opinions because of one day's opinion poll, even if it was organized by the government. And I, anybody who wanted me to know who he was, I was quite outspoken. I had a row with Cameron about the whole mad idea. Uh, this particular one was particularly silly because it's such a simple question. Broad brush, you know, remain or leave? Do you want to be in? Do you like the feeling of being in? Do you like the feeling of leaving? Hundreds, if not thousands, of other questions are wrapped up in that. This is a simple one-day little opinion poll on our entire relationship, politically and economically, with most other countries in the world. Our role in the world was one of the leading influential big members of the EU uh, and all our trade agreements with other countries at the instigation of British governments with the EU. Uh, our economy, our role in the rules-based globalised economy, which is breaking down anyway now, uh, was, was, you know, the biggest, the most developed so far international free trade area in the world, the EU. And so once you go on, I mean, the public are now being driven in rage by all this detailed conversation, but <coughs> we've got to sort out aviation regulation now. The idea everybody's just going to let us... The British are now taking the view, well, of course, you didn't say we're going to leave all these things. Uh, we like some, so we'll stay in those, please. No, no obligations anymore. No, 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 we can change our mind when we want. And we're, no financial contribution or anything of that kind, but uh, we'll just carry on as if we were in the EU, here, 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 and here. Uh, and the, 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 we haven't started, two years have gone by, we haven't started serious negotiation about quite a lot of extremely difficult subjects. That on the strength of that, I don't usually get criticised for being the only Conservative, actually, who voted against Article 50. But the reason I have the view now we're obviously going to leave in a few months' time, it's just a frightening thought, really, because we haven't remotely ready for it, but we're going to leave in a few months' time, uh, is the whole political class, everybody, has signed up to it. When I ask anybody to give me the slightest sensible reason for leaving your atom, 
I'm told, my masters, the people have ordered us to leave your atom uh, in the referendum. I don't think nuclear safeguarding featured much in the campaign, but that doesn't matter. And on we go. But anyway, we are going to leave. Uh, and I'm now in the business of minimising the damage because everybody else, most parties, not all of them, there are about 70 or 80 of us voted against uh, invoking Article 50. Government didn't want Parliament to have a vote. We didn't Parliament, they said. Our masters, the people who invoked it, so we're off. Uh, but but uh, it's a crazy way of running a country. Okay. And the public will get driven up the wall when we get down to arguing about, I've already mentioned, the clear skies policy. But, how we roll over all these trade agreements with other countries in the world and all that. The, the, the details will just no doubt be whipped up and anger about them and it will irritate people, but it's all yet to be decided. Um, and we see where we go. It's, okay. I, I think it's a dreadful blow to our political system. And it is being used. The arguments in Parliament, every time you disagree with a hardline Brexiteer, even if you're raising some quite detailed points, frankly, basically, damn all to do with whether we're inside the EU. No, 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 you can't argue that. You're, you're, you're plotting to undermine the referendum. You're ignoring the people. The people have decided what we're going to do about the European arrest warrant, or it happens to be going to be, and, and, and uh, you know, it mustn't, uh, Parliament shouldn't be debating these things. The big debate yesterday which was a shambles. We were given an hour and a half. Most members couldn't get in. I was lucky. I had a four, I had a four minute slot uh, to get in. It was just, what, what, you know, the general view is what's Parliament doing talking about all this stuff? And the whole argument is about whether Parliament's going to play a role if and when we achieve a clearer view of our withdrawal okay. agreement, which is only the first step and later this year. It's, the referendum has been. It is, it, 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 the reason people have referendums <coughs> is to get past Parliament. When Jimmy Goldsmith started demanding referendums, had his referendum party, the only reason they all got converted to referendums, the Eurosceptics, was they knew they would never get a parliamentary majority for leaving in a thousand years. So referendums, as Mussolini and de Gaulle used them brilliantly, is a way of neutralizing your political class, neutralizing your parliament, and cutting it out of the politics. And you know, there's a touch of that going on now and the general view what's it got to do with parliament and uh, what happens now now i defend the parliamentary system because you pay people to become experts and get immersed in the occupation in politics and in detail they go uh, statutory instrument bill by bill uh, policy by policy through what the government's doing and the government has to get until recently had to get the approval of Parliament, couldn't continue as a government, let alone with a policy, unless Parliament had approved it. And the name of the referendum, that's all being challenged now. And so I make it clear, I hope I never live to see the day we have another referendum. It's a completely okay. way to Thank run a welt stall, let alone a government. Thank you very much indeed. We've covered many topics uh, and... Um, we're very grateful for your answers. You are now invited to join us so that we could continue the discussion at a reception which is in another part of the LSE, and this, uh, this is on the fifth floor of the old building in Houghton Street. If you follow us, you'll be able to find it. Our students will be able to direct you as well. 
but there is a reception uh, that you're very uh, welcome to come and attend on the fifth floor of the old building in Houghton Street. You simply turn right out of this building and then right again, and you are there uh, where, where, where you're needed. We can continue the discussion at the reception, but it's, I think it's been a wonderful exploration of many different as- aspects of Kenneth Clark's uh, political career. So can you please join me in giving a very warm thank you. Thank you.